Last Sunday, uh, we were reading through the portion of Scripture that was uh, been dubbed, you know, the golden rule. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. And I was texting back and forth with uh, Sean Phillips, who's the senior pastor over at Journey. And we were texting back and forth, and I had posted on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, uh, about what we was going to be talking about, that it was God's goodness and the golden rule. And he texted me, he's like, dude, we are going through the fruits of the Spirit, and I'm preaching on goodness this week, and isn't that awesome? And we should have got together and studied together. That would have really, and I was like, yeah, we should have. That would be awesome. Like, what are you speaking on this weekend? Because <laughs> I'm all about working smarter, not harder. So um, unfortunately, not going to work out this weekend, but uh, that would have been fun. And uh, so one of the things, as we were talking about it, one of the things he said was really good, and so I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, and it's hard for us at times when we're supposed to treat other people the way that we want to be treated. It's difficult because we're looking at people the way they are and not as they could be, not as God sees them. We're looking at them as they are, those people that bug us, they annoy us, the people we hide from at the grocery store, right? Jay said he hides from me at the grocery store when he sees me. No, I joke, I joke because I'm like, I live in Liberty, but so many people live here, but I never see anybody at the store, so maybe I just don't get there enough. But those people, we have a hard time treating the way that we would want to be treated. But that's not the way the Heavenly Father looks at us, not the way that he looks at you and me. Once we are in Christ, once we're saved, once we're robed in his righteousness, once we're justified, he sees you and I through the lens of Jesus if I can say it that way. We are justified, just as if I'd never sinned, and then we're sanctified, we're set apart, we're holy. And we won't be perfected until we get there, until we stand in his presence. But right now, the way he views us, the way he views you when you are in Christ is as if you are already there. And so when we need to treat people the way that we want to be treated, we treat them as who they could be in Christ. You might say, well, Nathan, they're not a Christian. How can I treat them that way? Listen, you don't know what God has in store for them. And your act of love towards them might be what the Holy Spirit uses to bring them to himself. So when we say treat others the way that we want to be treated, it's not just a creed of the kingdom. We're not just doing it because Jesus says so. We are actually doing that. When we're doing that, we're pushing back against the darkness. We're actually expanding his kingdom here on the earth. And so when we're treating people the way that we want to be treated, whether they're Christians or not, we're to do that because the way God views us is if we are already there because we're in Christ and we can treat other people that way. And you'll be surprised what happens when you treat others the way that you want to be treated especially as a believer, as a son or daughter of God, that might just draw them into the kingdom. And that was pretty powerful stuff, so I thought I would share that with you. Um, for this week, like I mentioned, there's going to be a lot of scripture. This is a very um, sobering message today. Um, it's very sober. It's a very serious message because um, it's about the most important decision that you'll ever make. Uh, in, the, in the movie, Alice in Wonderland, um, Alice comes to a fork in the road, right? She comes to a junction and one path goes this way and the other one goes that way. And who appears? Cheshire Cat, right? Cheshire Cat appears in the tree and she says, hey, can you tell me which way I'm supposed to go from here? And Cheshire Cat says, well, that depends a great deal on where you want to go. And she says, well, I don't much care. And he says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go, right? Right? 
Not knowing where you're going is a great place to end up someplace you've never been. But sometimes it's a place you shouldn't be. And unfortunately, when it comes to eternity, the majority of people take this approach. Where should I go? Well, it doesn't really matter. Because they give very little thought to eternity. We put so much time, so much energy, so much focus into this life, which is so short, and we give very little attention to where we're going to spend eternity. Your final destination isn't based on chance, but by the choices that you make now. All the choices that people make now are going to determine where they spend eternity. And in not making a decision or putting it off until you're ready, some people say, I'll get right with Jesus later on. I have some stuff in my life that I want to do. I want to flesh out. I want to live like the world does. In not making a decision, you have already made your decision because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not. Today is the day of salvation, is what the Bible says. And as Jesus is wrapping up his discourse, he is leading the listeners to a very specific verdict. Now you need to make a decision. A choice must be made. And to illustrate this, he uses several contrasting ideas. Um, The first is two gates. He talks about two gates. Then he talks about two paths, two groups of people, two destinations. Then as we're going to get into, he talks about two types of trees, two builders, two houses. And in sticking with that, we're going to go over two verses today. So he starts contrasting these, um, these things back and forth because there has to be a choice that's made. This is our portion of scripture today, Matthew 7. We're just going to do 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, so all of the details in chapters 5 and 6 where Jesus is talking about what a citizen of the kingdom looks like, now today he's going to give us an invitation of how you become a citizen of the kingdom. Here's what it looks like. Here's man's standard. Here's God's standard. Huge gap in between. I can help you with that, but do you want to be a citizen or not? Now's the time to make a decision. It's an open invitation for all that want to come, but that invitation is not going to be extended indefinitely. There will be a day when that invitation is no longer offered. Every single day, you and I make decisions. Most of them are small decisions. They're very insignificant, but there are some that are life-changing. You guys have made some life-changing decisions before, and you all know that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you agonize over the decision that you're going to make because You don't want to make the wrong one, because if you make the wrong decision, there are consequences, there's ripple effects that fall out from that for good or for bad, and so we agonize over those decisions. And this decision is the decision that every single person must make. Which path do I choose? Do I take the narrow path or do I take the wide path? Uh, A man I used to work with, not a Christian, But it was interesting because he posted this on his social media. He says, the idea that there is a stairway to heaven and a highway to hell says a lot about the anticipated flow of traffic. A stairway to heaven and a highway. Now, for you young people, there was once a song called Stairway to Heaven. When your grandparents were teenagers, Stairway to Heaven. When your parents were teenagers, there was a song, Highway to Secular songs, okay? But they get it. Even the world knows that we are bent towards the broad path, a way of destruction. He posted that. I thought that was really interesting. 
Ever since it happened in the garden, ever since Adam and Eve chose to live in rebellion towards God, he has always ever been reaching out, pleading with people to come back to him, come back to the Father. He's made every effort. God has spared no expense in trying to get our attention. But God is so big. He is so massive. He is so other that man could not get it. We just don't get it. We can't understand God. And he had to reveal himself to us physically. A few weeks ago, Alicia and I were taking a walk, and we were walking down this wide um, sidewalk. And for some reason, about every five or six feet, there was tons of ants, just ants everywhere, which was weird because there wasn't any food on the sidewalk, nothing, just huge groups of ants. Now, I could bend down on the sidewalk and yell at those ants, get off the sidewalk, flee from the coming wrath of other walkers. You're on a path of destruction, you're going to get stepped on. But if I did that, they would just, you know, scratch their heads with their little antennas and go on. I'm too massive, I'm too big, they can't understand me. The only way that I would be able to communicate with them is to become one of them and tell them, flee. You're on the path to destruction. Get off the sidewalk and live. That's the only way I'd be able to do that. And that's a silly example, but that's, um, you know, exactly what Jesus did. When God became flesh, he did that so he could manifest himself, show himself to us what he's like, how he wants us to live. You know, it says when Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned, God walked with them in the cool of the day. And spoke with them. When they rebelled, when they were sent out of the garden, they no longer had access to the Father. So God had to speak through the prophets. God would speak to the prophets. Here's what I want you to tell the people. They're not listening to me. I need you to go do that. And they still didn't listen. They didn't listen to God's prophets. In fact, they killed most of them. Here's a couple examples. Um, In Deuteronomy 30, 19, Moses, he's at the end of his life. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. He's pleading with the people as they get ready to enter the promised land. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring might live. And then Joshua, who took over for Moses, echoed this same sentiment when God had renewed his covenant with the people. Joshua 24, 14 and 15, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you're going to serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah gave the same message to the people when he was on top of Mount Carmel, right before he took out all the 450 prophets of Baal. He said, choose. You want to serve Baal or you want to serve God? Fire falls. We'll take God. Thanks a lot. They turned to him, but... Not for long. They got in this cycle of rebellion and not listening and walking away. And then another prophet would come and warn the people. Jeremiah said the same thing when King Nebuchadnezzar was coming to take them out, to take control of Jerusalem. He said, choose life. Choose the Lord. Because the other way is going to lead to death and destruction. Now, they're pleading with the people. God is pleading with people to come back to him. But he's a perfect gentleman. God's not going to force himself on anyone. He's not going to force himself on him because love requires a choice. So the father sent his son to reveal his will and how to come back to him. He provided a way and he detailed a way for us to come back to him, to be saved, leaving man a choice. Do you want to be redeemed? Do you want to be a citizen? There's a choice to make. 
Uh, there was a book that came out a long time ago. I thought I had it, but I must have given it away, called uh, Not a Fan. Really good book. And uh, we live in a society, in a culture, where people are fans, right? They're fans of something, whether it's a, a sports team or a celebrity or a brand of some kind. Everybody is a fan because we have built inside of us, God has put inside of us, a desire to admire is what I'll call it. We all worship something. We all worship something. We all worship someone. God has put that inside of us, a desire to admire, because we're supposed to be desiring him. And just to summarize the book, um, this is a spoiler, but you can read it. Here's the gist. There are a lot of Chiefs fans in Kansas City, okay? Way more than when I was growing up when they stunk. A lot of Chiefs fans. Now, the first game was yesterday. First pre- who, did anybody watch the preseason? You did? See, nobody else cares about the preseason. <laughs> nobody else did. Actually, I was just busy, so I couldn't watch it. But started yesterday. Here in a couple weeks, 80,000 people are going to jam themselves into Arrowhead and hundreds of thousands across the city to scream their guts out and to pay hundreds of dollars to watch grown men move some weird-shaped ball from one end of the field to the other because they're fans. They're fanatics. That's what they're excited about. But here's the thing. They're not part of the team. They're not part of the team. They're just observers. All they can do is get loud and try to, you know, distract the other team. And the players that they're cheering for, the guys whose names are on the back of their jerseys, the players don't know who they are. They're just fans, just observers. But people feel like they're part of something big. They feel like they're part of the team when they're there, when they're cheering, when they're observing. Probably see where I'm going with this. A lot of people are fans of Jesus. They admire Jesus. They admire his teaching. But they're not really on the team. They're just fans. And they don't really know Jesus at all. And here we're going to find out here next week. Jesus is going to have to say, I don't know you either. They don't really know Jesus. They're just fans. You know, Jesus is okay. I like him. He's got some nice teaching. He's got some moral sayings. But they don't really know him. They're just a fan of him. But he can't simply be admired. He can't be admired simply for his ethical teachings or his moral sayings. He either is who he said he is. He's either God in the flesh or he's the biggest fraud, the biggest deceiver in human history. Because Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. At that point, you have a decision to make. He's not just a prophet. He's not just another good prophet, good teacher like so many others. Okay, he claimed to be God. He's either the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him, or he's the biggest con artist that ever lived. There is no in-between. There's no middle ground. He called, he called himself God. I and the Father are one, is what he said. You have a decision to make. One of the biggest you know, problems that, that people have with Christianity, of course, is its exclusiveness. There's one way. People don't like that. How can you say that it's exclusive? How can you say that that's the only way to God? But we know that man cannot come to God by anything that he designs. Any way that he chooses, he cannot come to God. There's only one way that they can come to God, and it's the way that's outlined and provided by the Father. Christianity is an exclusive religion. But if you're in a group of people, if you're in a crowd, and you start talking about some new esoteric idea, right? Or some new diet fad that's going, some health breakthrough, some new, some new pyramid scheme, okay? That's what I'll call it. Um, but whatever the new health, you know, craze is. People will 
come around and they will listen to you. They'll want to hear about that. What new ideas are you talking about? What new health craze is this? But if you start talking about Jesus, you start talking about Christianity and its exclusiveness, people will go the other way. They don't like the fact that we are so narrow-minded. We live in a culture, in a society that actually values equality and equity over truth. We value equality and equity over truth. The truth is there's only one way. Equality says there's many paths to God. There's lots of ways to get there. As long as you're served, as long as you're practicing your religion and you're doing it sincerely, all paths lead to God. That's the road for equality and equity. And I would say, you know, really? Because there have been lots of sincere maniacs through the ages that have led people astray. It inspires all kinds of sincere followers, but they're sincerely wrong because they're going down the path to destruction. God in his graciousness made it really simple. We're all really simple, okay? And God made it really simple for us. That is his provision for us. It's also a protection for us. Because if God said, here's 15 legitimate ways for you to get to heaven, I hope you find one of them. Satan would have come up with 15,000 counterfeit ways to confuse and deceive people. So God made it real simple. There's one way. This is what it is. There's always ever just been two systems. There has been divine achievement, what God did, or human accomplishment. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it through works. Every other religion is built on human achievement, works. I'm going to work my way into heaven, whether it's some type of um, formula or some type of serving or things that you have to do. It's all based on works. It's inspired by Satan, every other religion. It's not based on faith, on what God did. It's only on what I can do in the flesh. Christianity stands alone because salvation is in Christ alone, by grace, through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christianity stands alone. And that is God's narrow protection and provision for you and me. He made it real simple. Um, okay, that was all introduction. The first, like I talk about, it's two gates. The first is two gates. That's what Jesus contrasts here. Now, when I've read this part growing up, uh, I always thought, okay, there's a narrow gate, and the narrow gate says heaven, and then there's a broad gate over there, and the broad gate says destruction. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. People don't intentionally seek out things that are going to destroy them. People do what's in their best interest. We're good at that. We're good at doing things that are good for us. And so, um, actually, the fact is about these is both paths claim to lead to life. Both of them claim to lead to life, but only one leads to life. The other ends in destruction. It's just that the broad gate is easier to get through. The broad gate is easy. It's easy to get through. There's lots of good people that are traveling through the broad gate. It looks smoother there. It's more accessible. The narrow gate is restrictive. It doesn't look like it's been used that much. And the road looks kind of difficult past the narrow gate. Now, one thing's for sure. One thing is guaranteed is you're going to have to pick a gate. There's no other way around it. It's kind of like you're on, you know, you're on one of those, um, sorry, I just threw out, flew out of my mind at the airport, right? You're on one of those things where you're going towards the end of it, the conveyor belt, and you're going to have to make a decision. Which gate are you going to choose? 
Action is required by the person deciding. Can't just admire the gate. You have to go through the gate. Many people admire Jesus, but they never take him up on his offer of forgiveness and salvation. They simply admire him. They say that's just one gate, just one of many. But that's not what Jesus told us. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was what Peter declared on the day of Pentecost. And that's what we declare. We declare that Jesus is the only way, that he is the door, not just because we prefer that one, not before we prefer that gate, not because we're bigoted like the world says so, simply because Jesus said it. And when I was little, there was a pastor who said, you know, God said it, that settles it, you know? Jesus said it, that settles it. He says he is the way, that's why we declare it. Not because it's a personal preference, not because we're bigoted, simply because he said that's the way it is. So we have two gates. There's also two paths. Why do people prefer the wide path? Why do people choose the wide path? Well, one reason that people choose the wide path is because there's room for your sin on the wide path. There's room for your sin on the wide path. Charles Spurgeon said, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like the Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun. And he's referencing a story out of Joshua 10 where they caught these 10 kings and they had to bring them out and hang them from, you know, hang them from the gallows. We cannot keep any sins. We don't have any little private sins that we can keep with us. They all have to be forgiven. They all have to be given up. You can take the road to enlightenment and higher spiritual understanding and not deal with what narrow-minded Christians call sin. But the way to Jesus is the way of the cross and the way of self-denial. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, right? First, he has to deny himself. He has to pick up his cross daily and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. We see so many crosses now. It, it really almost has lost its impact to what it truly is. We see celebrities and rock stars and all kinds of people who aren't Christian, but they're wearing crosses and we see them and they haven't even stopped to consider what that really means. Uh, there was a guy who went to the jewelry store and he wanted to get a cross necklace for his wife. And so the salesman comes over and he's explaining what he wants. And he says, oh yeah, we have some of those. Uh, we have a, an assortment. Do you want the, the plain one or do you want the one with the little man on it? Didn't even know what it stood for. And we see so many crosses. We don't even know what that is. Take up your cross is equivalent to pick up your electric chair. Pick up your electric chair and follow me. That's how shocking it would have been to the people in that day when they heard it. Pick up that instrument of death. That's crazy. But Paul tells us, my flesh has to be crucified. The old man has to be put to death if I am going to live new in Christ. It's denying our flesh, not indulging it, which is what the world does. I'm going to indulge myself. Eat, drink, and be merry because we ain't going to be here for very long. It's turning over sovereignty of our lives back over to Jesus and not being just a fan watching from the rafters, rafters, but being a follower who actually walks with him. 
The path is narrow. The fact that very few people find it means it has to be sought for diligently. We have to seek for the narrow door diligently because few are those that find it. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. We want to find Jesus. We got to seek him with all of our heart. Nobody has ever stumbled onto the narrow road by accident. Nobody's ever discovered it um, by mistake. Jesus addresses this very thing in Luke 13. Says that he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And somebody said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. We were fans. But he'll say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. So two gates, two paths, and now two groups. Many are the ones that travel the broad path. Um, Pagans, atheists, humanists, humanists. Nominal Christians is what I'll call them. Ones who claim to be followers of Jesus, but there's no evidence of that in their lives. Somebody said once, they said, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Just because you have a cross on your wall at home or a Bible in your house doesn't mean that you're a follower of God, of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, all who haven't ultimately come to the saving obedience of Jesus Christ are going to be shut out. The broad path is easy. It's attractive to people. It's inclusive. It's permissive. It's self-oriented. It doesn't have very many rules, few restrictions. All you have to do is act religious or say you're a Christian and you can be a part of that large, diverse group of people that are wandering down the broad path. A group where sin is tolerated and truth is moderated or twisted and where humility is ignored. The Bible is praised but not studied. God's standards are admired but not followed. And it requires no spiritual discipline, no maturity, no commitment, and no sacrifice. That's the broad path. Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The gate is narrow, and you must enter the narrow gate alone. You can't go through with anyone else. It's kind of like a turnstile. You can't bring anyone else with you. I remember when the kids were little, and we used to go to like amusement parks and things like that, and they would have the turnstiles. But we had so many kids, we had a stroller. We always had somebody a stroller. If you had a stroller, you got to bypass the line and go through the wide gate, right? It would always be like, go through the wide gate. But if you go through a turnstile, you've got to go through alone. You can't bring anyone else with you. You can't ride in on anybody else's coattails. Just because your grandmother was a Christian, just because you come from a Christian heritage, that's not going to do it. Just because you were baptized as a baby doesn't count. Every person has to make a personal decision to follow Christ. The gate is narrow, and unfortunately, most people, most people will not find it. The Jews in Jesus' day, and even a lot of Jews today, believe that they're going to heaven simply because of their ethnicity, because they are part of the chosen people, because they have Abraham as their father. 
We're God's chosen people. But even John the Baptist said this to the Pharisees of that day. He said, don't presume to say that you're children of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. He says, because I tell you truly that God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. So even in his day, he said, your ethnicity isn't going to do it. Just being religious isn't going to do it. You need a relationship with the father. Christianity is exclusive, but it's also the most inclusive. It's kind of a paradox. It's exclusive, but it's also the most inclusive. Anybody can enter the gate. All that want to can enter the gate. There's one way, but anybody can get in. Paul would later go on to write this to the Christians in Rome. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Your birth certificate is not a passport. Can't use your birth certificate as a passport. And I would say this of Christians too. A Christian is not somebody who merely acts like one outwardly. A Christian is someone who has given their life to Jesus and surrendered to him inwardly. They believe that just being a descendant of Abraham was good enough. Just like some people believe that sitting in a church on Sundays is good enough. But just being in church for a couple hours on Sunday and then living like the world the other six days of the week doesn't cut it. I remember when I was sitting in church and there was a pastor once who said, um, you know, standing, being a Christian and sitting, you know, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. Can't just sit in the seat and then live like the world the other six days of the week. The people who believe that all roads lead to heaven um, is kind of like believing that there's a meandering road. You know, they call it a spiritual journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. And somehow, some way, that meandering path is going to end up at the top of a mountain where you'll encounter God or you'll encounter heaven or nirvana or whatever. But God isn't sitting on top of a mountain that can be climbed. He is sitting on a sheer face like a slab of granite where there's no footholds, there's no handholds. You cannot get to the top on your own. You have to be lifted to the top. We need Jesus to bring us to the top. The only path to get there is through Jesus who can raise us up. Ephesians 2 actually tells us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in heaven, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can't climb to him. You can't walk a spiritual path to him. You only have to be raised up by him. The path's not narrow because it's limited in the number of people that can travel it. It's not like the narrow path can't accommodate more people. It's because there are few people who actually choose God's way. God's grace and God's space are limitless. They're boundless. God's grace and his space are boundless. But it's small because God, um, because few people choose it. But it's not small because God wants people to perish. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is patient. Some people think God is slow. Why hasn't God come back yet? He's been saying that for thousands of years. People have been preaching that, that God, that Jesus is coming back. I haven't seen it. But God is patient because he wants as many people as possible to repent and come to him. Every person who will come to Christ can come to Christ. So people uh, say from time to time, say, well, I don't get this. Do we have free will? Do we get to choose? You're talking about making a choice, Nathan. You got to go through the broad gate or the narrow gate. Do we have a choice or is it all predestined? Because Paul says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. God knew it ahead of time. So is it all set in stone or do we have to make a choice? 
Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> now, there's just enough mystery in the Bible. It's very black and white, but there's just enough mystery in the Bible to keep us reliant on him. And here's the thing. God knows ahead of time. You have to make a choice, but God knows ahead of time because he knows everything. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows those who are his. He knows those that are going to choose him. And so, yes, he does know, but you still have to make a choice. And if you don't know, if you wonder if you're one of the chosen, you need to make a choice and then you'll know that you've been chosen. All right. Does that make sense? It's confusing for some. How does that mean? Do you choose or has he chosen you? Yes, is the answer. John 6, 37, Jesus told his disciples, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Good news is if you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you've made him Lord of your life, he's never going to lose you. It says nobody can take him. Nobody can take them out of the palm of my hands. You're secure in him. You'll never be cast out. But if it's all an act, if it's all an act, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just sitting here on Sundays and you don't really desire relationship, if you don't desire to know him and for him to know you, then you're not really his. I could say it that way. That's a very black and white way of saying it. If you don't desire him, you don't desire him to know you, then you're not really his. And unfortunately, some of those who are not his are false teachers. They're people that are leading thousands of people astray, giving them a wrong gospel. Uh, in our small group, and you guys know, we've been going through Psalm 23, and it becomes very, very clear every time we meet why Jesus calls us sheep. We're very simple. We're followers. We're very, uh, very much like sheep, but we can take comfort in the fact that we have a good shepherd. You know, the care of the sheep, the sheep are only as good as their shepherd. If they have a good shepherd that provides for them and takes care of them and protects them, they're going to be in good condition. But if they have a shepherd that doesn't watch over them, it just kind of leaves them to themselves, they're going to get in all kinds of trouble. Jesus addresses this in John 10. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the sheep, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee for him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He had to make it simple <laughs> because we're simple. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. They will no longer, Paul says, I'll be no longer Jew and Gentile. I'll be no longer male or female. We're all going to be part of the same family. We're all going to be in the same sheepfold. So there's two groups. The sheep that hear the shepherd's voice and follow him through the narrow gate. Or the thieves 
and the robbers and what later on he'll call the goats, the ones who are wild, who will not be tamed, who go their own way. So two gates, two paths, two groups, and also we have two destinations. Uh, There was a senator once who was riding the train and he was searching frantically for his ticket on the train and the conductor standing there and he's like, I got to find that ticket. And the conductor says, well, you know, Senator, don't worry about it. I'm sure you have a ticket. Just when you find it, just mail it back to us. He says, no, that's not it. I got to find the ticket to know where I'm going. And even know where his destination was. Somebody put him on the train, gave him his ticket. He didn't even know where he was headed. I mentioned this at the beginning, but Jesus doesn't say that the gate or the path is marked heaven or hell. Only that its last stop is there. That's where it ends up. Satan put up his own sign at the front of the broad path, and it says satisfaction and happiness and peace and prosperity. The reason why people go in there. But that's not what people will find eternally. The path might be smooth, but it ends with a slippery slope that no traveler will be able to get out of. The destination is destruction. In Luke 13, Jesus calls it a place where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, the idea that there are just going to be constant tears flowing out of their eyes and their, and their teeth are going to be grinding in agony because of where they've been in destruction when they end up in hell. There's this verse in Revelation, Revelation 14, and I've got to be honest with you, this is a tough one to think about. I don't understand it fully. It says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And a lot of times we think of heaven and hell as very separate Locations. This talks of people being tormented in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and it goes up forever and ever. That's terrible. That's a terrible thought, something I can't even wrap my head around. The way of the beast and the spirit of Antichrist have always been in the world, but soon, soon, I believe, it's going to become even more blatant, especially when we're taken out of the world. When, when those who are left are going to have to make a decision, do I choose the way of self-preservation, which is actually the way to destruction? Or do I finally surrender my life to Jesus and be martyred for my faith, which is actually going to be the way of salvation? There will be converts. People ask, will the church go through the rapture? Yeah, the church will go through the rapture. There will be, conv- there will be converts after the rapture in the tribulation, but they're going to have to face the wrath of the Antichrist. They're going to be martyred for their faith. So will the church go through the tribulation? Some will. But they're going to be converted after the rapture. If they do that, they'll live eternity. But if you're waiting for the rapture to be saved, you're not going to do it. If you can't stand for Jesus, if you can't live for him now, you are never going to do it afterwards when all the believers are taken out of the world. How are you going to do it then if you can't do it now? Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we're told that in the days of Noah, every inclination of the imagination of man's heart was evil continually. That's a tough one to think about. 
I mean, every imagination, every idea that they have was bent towards evil continually. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be when the Son of Man comes back. All their thoughts, all their imaginations are on evil things. Only Noah and his family were pointed towards the Lord. And God gave Noah instructions and a very specific warning. Very specific instructions and a very specific warning. There's a flood coming. Build a boat because destruction is coming. He gave him a detailed plan and a very specific outcome, which is exactly what he's given you and I in his word. He's given us very specific instructions and a very serious warning. Now, here's what's interesting. I was reading um, online in uh, Answers in Genesis, which is a great site if you have questions about these types of things. And the time that transpired between when God gave Noah the plans and when he put him in the ark was about 75 years or something like that. You think God hasn't spoken to you for a long time. He said, build the boat. I'll tell you what to do later. He got, he got down to business. He took God's instructions seriously and he heeded his warning. Listen to what it says in Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the, sixth, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and their three wives and sons, they entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird and every uh, according to its kind, and winged creatures. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Noah didn't close the gate. God closed the door. Noah and his family went through the door, and God shut him in. There were two options for Noah. He could ignore God's instructions and not heed his warning and become destroyed like the rest of humanity. Or go through the door, the gate that led to life, and let God seal him in. The ark is an Old Testament picture of Jesus and the cross. They had to be in the boat. We have to be in Christ if we're going to be saved. And Noah and his family are a picture of the New Testament church that are going to be saved from the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on a sin-filled, Christ-rejecting world. We're going to be saved from that just like Noah and his family, that we're in the ark, we're saved from the wrath and the punishment of God. And if you want to be saved from the wrath of, of God, then you'd better follow his detailed plan and heed his very serious warning. Enter by the narrow gate. Walk the narrow path. My prayer for all of us is that every single time you walk through a door, every single time you walk on a path that you hear Jesus' words, because the door isn't going to remain open indefinitely. There will be a day when God closes it. When God closes the door and he shuts in those who are his and shuts out those who have rejected him. Everyone else who hasn't submitted their lives to him. Everyone else who has not chosen the narrow gate is going to face eternal judgment. It's appointed once for man to die and then he's going to see God. We live, we die, and then you are going to meet your maker. The question is, Will you be ushered in or will you be shut out? I know this is a sobering message, but it should be. It's very serious. 
I wouldn't be fulfilling my call if I did not give it to you plainly that there are two choices. Either live for him now or be judged eternally. There's nothing in between. We all have to take stock and consider the state of our own souls. Take the narrow gate. Get right with Jesus. Um, We're going to have the the elders up here at the end of service. And if you need prayer, if you want to talk, then you can certainly come up and do that. But don't leave today if you're unsure. Or if you have somebody that you want to talk to and you say, how do I do this? You know, how do I deliver this message to them? We can give them the, the video, I suppose. But how do we talk to people and give them the seriousness of this message? There is a detailed plan, instructions, and there's a very serious warning about what's going to happen. And are we in Christ? Are we in the boat? When God's wrath gets poured out, we have to make a decision. You know, there was a a pastor once who had a bunch of other pastors in his office. And he had a window in there that overlooked the park. And he called the guys together and he's like, what do you see out there? And one of them said, well, I, I see the park. I see people. He said, I see souls destined for an eternity in hell unless somebody tells them about Jesus. Unless somebody tells them that they have a choice to make. Don't just get a float through life. Every single person that we meet is a soul that's going to end up somewhere eternally. We need to be right so that we can share that with them when we get the opportunity. Some will listen, but it says few are those who find it. But but may we be those that at least share the truth. Right? It says the teachers will be held to a higher standard I'm just not just up here to give you, you know, a rah-rah speech for the week so you can get your tank filled. It's to be honest and deliver the truth to you, okay? So that, you know, when I stand before God, he says, did you deliver the truth? Did you tell them the truth that they have a decision to make on where they're going to spend eternity? And I can do that with a, a clean conscience. So I love you guys too much to sugarcoat it. Christ is my friend. Foundation